Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Today, we have two staff members from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project located in Philadelphia. Clay Waterman is the intake attorney and he manages the screening process and intake for the project by reviewing requests coming in from uh, incarcerated individuals in Pennsylvania. He's been with the project for about a year and a half, having practiced law in New York. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Buffalo Law School in 2011. Clay will be with us for two podcasts and then Mal Ragul, boy, she's got a tough name, Uh, (laughs) Ragul, uh, Nathan will join us for the next two programs. She is an educator and social worker who provides exonerees with reentry services. She is passionate about supporting people as they navigate their unique life circumstances, and she envisions a world free from surveillance, punishment, interpersonal, and state-sanctioned violence. The Pennsylvania Innocence Project opens its doors in 2009, having been founded by a group of lawyers as a nonprofit. Its home is at Temple University in Philadelphia. Student interns play a key role. They are from Temple, Villanova, Drexel, the University of Pennsylvania, Rutgers, and Penn State schools of law. And now there is an additional office of the project in Pittsburgh. Over The last uh, 12 years, 20 men and women have been exonerated. And I just wanted to mention that the executive director of the project is Nan Filer. So before we meet Clay, I wanted to alert my listeners to a special day that has been set aside for the past six years, Wrongful Conviction Day on October 2nd. If you've been listening to my podcast for the last two years, you know this issue is closest to my heart. Please think about donating whatever you are able to your state's Innocence Project. If you live abroad, several countries also have Innocence Projects. That is the one way we can all help. So now we welcome Clay Waterman to the podcast. Welcome, Clay. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. So let's begin with how you chose this particular field of work and why you gravitated towards working for an innocence project as opposed to a law firm. Well, it it took me a while to come to that conclusion to work for an innocence project rather than a law firm because I worked at a Uh, law firm in private practice for about eight years before coming down to Philadelphia and starting with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. And really, you know, since my entire life, I've wanted to do something in criminal justice reform. And I feel that law school kind of tends to push you in the direction of private practice. And so after graduating, I found myself in private practice and told myself that after two, three, four, five years, after making a little bit of money, I'd move back into the public interest sector. It took longer than that, but I finally, eventually made a move. And um, 
I, I volunteered with the, the Pennsylvania Innocence Project for about six months before a position opened up. And luckily, uh, it did open up and luckily I got the position. So here I am now doing what I love to do and, you know, fighting on the side of justice. Well, that's great. Um, explain the job that you do at the project and also um, if you could incorporate the mission of the Innocence Project in Pennsylvania. Sure. So <clears throat> my position is an intake attorney. So what I do specifically at the project is I um, coordinate volunteers, law students, um, all types of interns, um, and I run what we call the, the four-stage process that we have. So it's essentially a vetting process that we go through for every single incarcerated individual that writes to us. And I'm sure we'll talk about that process a little later on in the podcast. But so I'm generally working with what we call stage two and stage three um, and supervising all the volunteer attorneys and all the law interns on analyzing the cases and doing deep dives into all the documents that we can get our hands on to assess whether we believe first, that the individual is actually innocent, and second, whether there's any chance at obtaining a new trial. Um, essentially, you know, we're, we're a small office. We have very few people working here, um, very little money and support, so we can only take on a small number of cases. So we really have to whittle it down and can't take on every single person's case that writes to us, although we do ensure that we give every single individual our full attention and a deep dive into analyzing whether they have a genuine innocence claim. And for some people, this is the first time in the history of their case that they've had somebody genuinely look into their case. Um, and we, you know, provide that service to everyone who writes to us, um, although there are a much more select few that we actually represent. And so our mission, I don't have the mission statement right in front of me, but is to, you know, help exonerate the wrongfully convicted and to reduce the number of people who are wrongfully convicted in the future. Um, and that means working in, on public policy measures to try to mitigate the amount of people who are wrongfully convicted. I don't think we're going to stop wrongful convictions altogether, but we can certainly help to reduce them. Um, and we also work on changing the law surrounding wrongful convictions and doing things like this, you know, joining podcasts, teaching students, doing all kinds of community outreach to lawyers and others to show that, you know, it's, it's not what people see on TV. It's not mm -hmm. um, what you hear um, about forensic evidence about, you know, these people are all bad. They, they must be the murderers. We can definitely trust police and prosecutors and the criminal justice process. Um, there's there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that you simply can't trust or shouldn't trust and should take with a large degree of skepticism. And hopefully um, through our work and through our actions in the community, we can show that to people. That sounds great. That's very clear on you know what you do. Um, who is part of your team uh, there? Sure. So we have four attorneys. Um, I'm one of those. Um, and then we have an investigator, 
um, who goes out and investigates the cases, you know, talks to potential witnesses, especially when we can't determine whether someone's innocent or not. And then if we already represent someone who will go out and try to find witnesses to um, bring to the court's attention to try to obtain a new trial. Um, we also have a paralegal, a social worker. Um, you're going to be talking to Maul later. She was our part-time social worker. We now also have a full-time social worker who has come in. Um, we have our office manager who has been here since the start of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, and she runs everything. Um, our executive director, Nan, who you mentioned, and kind of a development communications director. So it's it's kind of divided into the legal team and then the development fundraising team um, and organizational office team as well. So it's, it's a small office. Um, as you mentioned, we have a Pittsburgh office. Uh, just one of the attorneys is located there. And she also teaches at Pitt and Duquesne. We hold um, clinics there as well. Um, but we serve the entire state of Pennsylvania. So we have cases from Philly, which is all the way on the east side, Pittsburgh, all the way on the west side, and everything that happens in between mm -hmm. as well. Now, the law interns that I mentioned um, in my introduction, how, how do they help? They're, they're not very experienced. They're still students. But how, what's their role? So they're really part of the case vetting process. So they're taking on cases to really analyze whether there's a genuine claim for innocence and whether there's a possibility that we can present this claim for innocence and obtain a new trial for the incarcerated individual. Um, so they take on what we call stage three cases in teams. Um, what they'll do is they'll be assigned it will train them first and we'll train them throughout the semester we hold the seminar for them weekly um, and then i'll also meet with them individually every week on their cases but they take a deep dive into these cases analyzing the trial transcripts the appellate documents everything that's possibly associated with the case the police investigation files any letters that they've written us along the way some of the incarcerated individuals write books explaining why they're innocent mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we'll get those and give those to the students reviewing the cases um, and it's a really it can be thousands of pages it can be hundreds of pages depending on if the ind individual had a two-day trial or a two-week trial depending on the complexity of the case and we have these students really uh, digest and analyze all this information and put it into a document that's usable for us, the attorneys at the project, to really determine whether the individual is innocent, what issues are present in the case, uh, what we can do moving forward, whether there are other people we need to reach out to to investigate the case, whether there are documents that we think might exist that we don't have that we need to get our hands on um, or whether, you know, we can take on the case and litigate it right then and there. Um, so they're really both the legal interns and then we have pro bono attorneys doing this work for us as well. Um, there's way too much for, for the four attorneys that we have to take on and to look at. So we really rely on both the interns and the volunteer attorneys to do a lot of the work uh, that we need to do. Now, when the interns <clears throat> are working uh, with you on a case, do they all get 
the exact same documents or do you divide it up? They're each, well, they generally work in teams. So we'll oh. assign one case to a team of two interns um, <clears throat> and they'll get all the documents from that case, those two interns. And then the other interns will get all the documents for the other cases. And in Pennsylvania in particular, unfortunately, you know, a lot of times we're missing a lot of documents. Um, they could be missing their trial transcripts. We try to get a hold of those, but can't always get a hold of those from prior attorneys. Um, you might not get the investigation file from the police or prosecutor, but we have to work with what we have and try to figure out what we don't have. Um, in particular, the law in Pennsylvania is that it's not open discovery during criminal trials. So what happens is somebody is arrested and convicted of murder, say in Pennsylvania, the police turn over what they deem to be exculpatory or potentially exculpatory evidence to the prosecutor, meaning evidence that could show that this individual is innocent or cast doubt on their guilt. The prosecutor then takes a look and determines again for themselves what they deem to be exculpatory and they only have to turn that evidence over to the defense. So what you're left with sometimes is what's known as a Brady claim or a Brady violation um, if the prosecutor doesn't turn over potentially exculpatory evidence. But it's going through two layers. So it's first the police determining what they think is exculpatory, then the prosecutor determining what they think is exculpatory. And then that's the only information that the defense gets. And, you know, in this adversarial system, the police and the prosecutors are trying to win. They're trying mm. to put this person in prison. So, you know, if, if you don't have the most upright individual in the detective's office or in the prosecution office, you might not get all the documents that you should. And you have really no idea that those documents are out there to begin with. So, you know, you're, you're at a significant disadvantage and we see that in these cases that we're reviewing 10 years on. And, you know, some of the people that we've exonerated um, have had Brady claims and um, we've found that detectives and prosecutors have not turned over evidence in the past. And it's not always people who are, you know, even, have malicious intentions who don't turn over the documents, you know, it can be lazy work. It can be that this individual doesn't think this document matters, so they don't turn it over. And then five years down the road, it turns out that another witness said that this person did it and they, the detective or prosecutor never knew about it in the first place. But because of these laws and because of the dearth of information that the defendant gets, it's, it's very difficult in the first instance, and it's very difficult for us and for the individual later on to try to have their case overturned. Yeah, very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, taking a case has many layers. When someone reaches out to you, what happens? Sure. So <clears throat> we, in order for someone to be considered by the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, they have to write to us directly. So <clears throat> they write to us directly and our office manager takes a look at their letter. And the first thing that we need to determine is whether the person is claiming that they're innocent, whether they're convicted in Pennsylvania and how long 
uh, is remaining on their sentence. So if they're not convicted in Pennsylvania, we write back and say, you know, write to the innocence organization that looks at your cases and we refer them to a different organization. If they're not claiming innocence, if they're claiming, you know, I was there and I did something, but my charge is <clears throat> um, doesn't line up with what I did or something along those lines, we can refer them out to someone else who might take a look at that case, but that simply doesn't line up with our objectives. Um, and then if they have a short sentence, say it's two years, including parole or something along those lines, unfortunately, we just we can't look at those cases either because it takes so long to go through our process. And not just our process, but the legal system takes so long that by the time that we would look at their case, they would already be out of prison and out of parole. So that's that's the first step when they write a letter. If they meet that those criteria, we send them out a questionnaire, um, have them fill out the questionnaire and send us back. If they have them, their appellate documents, which are they were convicted in the court um, by a jury or by a judge, depending on what their case was and what they or their defense attorney requested and decided, and then they appeal um, and then their appeal is denied or else they wouldn't be writing to us. Right. So we ask for those appellate documents in order to assess um, what their case is about and whether they have a potential innocence claim. Um, and that I, I might as well kind of go on about the stage process. So that's oh, go right ahead. Yeah. Sure. So so stage two starts when they write us back um, with their filled out questionnaire and they write back with a filled out questionnaire and their appellate documents. And what we'll do is we'll take those documents and assign that to a volunteer attorney to review and to digest and to draft a, a summary and synopsis of what they believe to be this person's innocence claim and whether they believe we should move the case forward. So it's really a look at just these initial documents. It's a bird's eye view. We take a very liberal view of what we should move forward on to, to what we call stage three um, because there are so few documents. So if the individual is saying there's this other witness out there who wasn't brought up at trial, who said that this other person committed the murder, what have you, or there's this potential DNA evidence, whatever it is, we'll generally move the case on to stage three. But if it's something that we just know off the bat, that there's no possible chance that this person's innocent or that we could prove innocence, then it will close the case out right at stage two. So we, we see that often with and sexual molestation of minors cases. So if it's an ongoing thing, um, a minor came forward and said, this individual was molesting me for six years. Um, they didn't come forward until years after it stopped. So there's no physical evidence of that we can use to prove that they're innocent or guilty. Um, but this individual hasn't recanted what they said. They still said this person molested me. There's really very little that we can do and very little evidence that we can turn up to prove that they're innocent. So some of these cases, and this is just an example, you know, there may be other circumstances, there may be other witnesses or other things that they can use to prove they're innocent, in which case we will move the case forward. But some of those cases will be closed at stage two and we'll write to the person in prison and say, these are the reasons why we're closing your case. 
please feel free to write us back and change our minds about it, essentially. Does, does everybody who writes to you um, get some answer? You know, yes, we'll take your case. No, we won't. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, yeah, so we write back to everyone who writes to us initially. We write back to everyone who is already in our process who writes to us, you know, whether it's for an update on their case. It's, it's again, part of what we strive to do is to humanize their process because they've been treated like a number, uh, you know, their whole entirety entire time, at least within the justice system, if not their whole life. So we make it a point to write back to everyone, no matter what they're writing about at any time. Do you get to read the letters when they come in? Who opens the letters? So our office manager deals with the letters um, when they're initially drafted to us or when they're initially sent to us for someone who's not already in our system. Um, if someone writes to us at stage three, then they come to me. So if someone writes to us at stage one or two, our office manager deals with it. Stage three, I deal with it. Stage four, which is when we're already representing the individual, the, the lawyer who's litigating that case will receive that letter and write back. I see. Mm -hmm. um, now, how do people who are in prison who um, have no access to the internet, how do they find out about you? So we we advertise in the prison papers. Um, there's one called Greater Friends that, you know, we we just submitted an article that we now offer our services in Spanish um, and other languages. So we, we do advertise in that way. Um, word of mouth is probably the biggest factor, you know, is prisoners are sitting there, you know, they, they don't have much else to do except for brood over their lack of justice, especially if they're innocent. Um, and so if, if one person gets out, everybody hears about it, mm -hmm. you know, so word of mouth is a big thing. Um, and it seems like, you know, they are relatively connected, um, you know, as soon as the, the state convictions integrity unit opened up, we got a flood of letters from people saying, hey, submit my case to the state CIU. As, as soon as the Philadelphia Conviction Integrity Unit opened up, we have a flood of letters. Hey, it, there, there was this information that came out that this detective it, uh, lied in this case. He was the detective in my case, too. Mm -hmm. Can you, you know, do something about that, essentially? <laughs> um, so, you know, word of mouth travels a lot. I, I would think. So we're, we're almost out of time. How, how, tell us how many letters approximately do you receive each year? Just to give uh, listeners an idea. Sure. So we receive about 600 letters from new individuals every year. So these are people who haven't written us in the past. And, you know, these are all generally individuals carrying long sentences. Um, and we receive thousands of letters from people who are already in our system. Um, there are thousands of people in our system, either in stage one, two, three, or four, and they write us, uh, some, some might write us 10 times a year. So mm. there's, there's a lot of letters coming in. Um, and you know, the, like I said, we still receive an average of 600 new letters a year, and there are about 45,000 people in the Pennsylvania pr state prison system. So 
I, I don't think that number is going to slow down anytime no. soon. And that's that's just the state prison system. There's another 30,000 in local jails as well. All right. So you are willing to come back, talk to us some more about um, other topics related to what you do. Uh, I'm delighted that you're willing to do that. And um, I I did some looking and I, I'd like to bring up a particular case uh, when we uh, have you come back next time. So we can talk about that and some of the mistakes that were made that are often contributing factors to how this occurs. So we, we will talk about that next time. So thank you very much, Clay, for being with us today. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much.